You may have heard of Bernie Madoff, the man who was turned in by his sons after stealing $65 billion from investors in a giant Ponzi scheme, ultimately being sentenced to 150 years in prison. Well known on Wall Street, but hardly a household name anywhere else, confessed to his sons that his $65 billion fund was simply a giant Ponzi scheme. To say the least, it was the last thing the battered financial markets needed in the fall of 2008, and the ripple effect, even to this day, has been massive. It has been said that there's nothing new under the sun. Everything that there is to do has already been done. The same is true for the story of Bernie Madoff. So that's not the story I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you why it's even called a Ponzi scheme in the first place. This podcast tells the stories of people we empathize with or root for. Sometimes because of what they did and sometimes in spite of it. I'm Caleb Carter. This is Antihero. Bernie Madoff, you could argue, ruined scores and scores of people. But in your interview, he seems to suggest they should have known better. Absolutely, yeah. He said that um, a lot of the majority of his investors were sophisticated investors, and they should have known better to invest in in his fund. Uh, if you recall, he was very secretive about his fund on Wall Street, and nobody was allowed to ask questions, uh, any questions. And if they did, they weren't allowed to invest. And a lot of people invested without asking any questions, and he said they shouldn't have done that. <laughs> the nerve of this guy. To rip off thousands of people and say they should have known better. But actually, he's right. This identical scenario has played out before. Charles Ponzi was born back in 1882. Uh, Ponzi's had a history of success, but that success appears to have skipped the generation Charles was born into. His parents and close relatives hadn't been able to maintain the status of previous generations. They weren't doing much more than getting by. And they weren't even doing that very well. They had next to nothing. Ponzi realized very early in his life that he didn't have the life of the things that other kids had, so he started stealing. Toys, food, money from the church collection plate. But he wasn't very good at it. He always got caught. But what he was good at was using his charm and charisma to talk himself out of trouble. He avoided any serious setbacks, made his way through school, and eventually got accepted into one of the most prestigious universities in Italy. He was on track to restore the family name, but instead of focusing on his studies, he spent most of his time hanging out with the rich kids. Kids whose families were well off and owned businesses. Kids who didn't necessarily need college and treated it more like a four-year vacation before taking their place in the family business. So after his four-year vacation, Ponzi left the university with no degree and no way to create the life that he wanted. During the early 1900s, many Italians in search of opportunity started migrating to the United States. After falling out of college, Ponzi's family had grown tired of his act and felt that if he had any hope of becoming someone, his only hope was America. So in 1903, he boarded the SS Vancouver and headed to the United States. When he got on the ship, he had a little over $200, worth nearly $3,000 today. But ever the gambler, he gambled away most of his savings on the long trip over. He arrived in Boston in a cold November with $2.50 in his pocket. His life in America was off to a rough start. Ponzi did have one thing going for him, though. He was a fast learner. He quickly taught himself English, which helped him get a job as a waiter. But it wasn't long before customers started complaining about being shortchanged and overcharged. 
Ponzi was fired and was back at square one. He bounced around the East Coast working odd jobs whenever he could before eventually deciding it was time for a change. He relocated to Montreal and landed a job as a bank teller at Zerosi Bank. At this time, banking laws were very lax. Anyone with enough money could start a bank regardless of their history or qualifications. Luigi Zerosi had the money, but his qualifications were a bit questionable. The bank was formed to cater to the influx of Italian immigrants in the area. Zerosi offered a 6% return on all deposits, while most other banks offered half that. They also specialized in handing out loans to Italian immigrants looking to buy homes, attaching a high interest rate to the loans. Ponzi was by no means a financial expert, but he was smart and understood numbers. After looking over the books, he determined pretty quickly that the bank was in serious financial trouble and that Zerosi had been using deposits made by new customers to cover the withdrawals made by other customers. Realizing that a collapse was imminent and he'd soon be jobless, Ponzi activated his exit strategy. He started forging checks in an elderly account holder's name. When investigators started sniffing around, Luigi ran off to Mexico with as much of the bank's money as he could carry, and Ponzi ended up in a Canadian prison for three years because of the forged checks. Instead of telling his mother he was in a Canadian prison, he wrote her a letter saying that he was working in a Canadian prison, giving himself the title of Special Assistant to the Warden. He was released in 1911 and made his way back to the United States, where he would immediately begin smuggling Italian immigrants across the border. This landed him in an Atlanta prison where he would spend the next two years of his life. After his release, he returned to the East Coast and got a job at a Boston mining camp where he met a nurse named Pearl. And maybe this doesn't fit the narrative of who people want to believe Charles Ponzi was, but he was quite giving at times. When Pearl suffered severe burns in an accident, despite not knowing her very well, Ponzi underwent multiple operations to donate skin to her, saving her life in the process. But no good deed goes unpunished. The operation caused an infection in Ponzi's lungs, costing him his job. There was more roaming along the East Coast and more odd jobs. He met an Italian immigrant named Rose. They got married. More traveling, more jobs. Then he landed with a shipping company in Boston that imported and exported goods. It was during this time in October of 1919 when a company in Spain mailed Ponzi a letter interested in using the services of an advertising company he'd briefly put together. The company went under quickly, never making him any money, but that was indirectly about to change. Inside the envelope, there was an international reply coupon. Ten years earlier, Congress decided to issue them so that people could send mail from one country to another and include the coupon, which could be redeemed for postage stamps in the recipient's country. The company in Spain included the coupon in order to cover the cost of Ponzi's reply postage. But Ponzi had different plans. An international reply coupon was an expensive form of postage, and Ponzi knew that. So he took it to a local post office and exchanged it for multiple stamps. After a little research, he realized that the price of the coupons were not the same in every country. As a matter of fact, American post offices charged much more for them than any other country. In other words, they were worth more in America than anywhere else. So if he could get these coupons for a cheap price in one country, then have them sent to America, he could exchange them for stamps and sell the stamps for profit. This tactic is known as arbitrage, the practice of taking advantage of a price difference between two or more markets. And not only is it legal, it's a respected business tactic, one that's commonly used in the foreign exchange market. For every dollar Ponzi spent on coupons in Europe, he could exchange them in America for $5 worth of stamps, a $4 profit, 400% return on his investment. 
He reportedly hired agents in other countries who would buy these coupons and then send them to Ponzi. The key to being a good businessman is finding value in things that others have overlooked. The key to being a good con man is exaggerating that value. He told anyone who would listen that he could make them rich, and he was an effective salesman. He had always been charming, articulate, and confident, but now he had the business to back it all up. In order to increase his buying power, he began taking investments, guaranteeing a 50% return in 45 days or a 100% return in 90 days. For example, if a customer gave him $1,000, he would give them 1,545 days. That same 1,000 would yield 2,000 in 90 days. The money poured in. After the first batch of investors received their initial payouts in 45 days, they instantly reinvested the money and went and told the world about Charles Ponzi. In November of 1919, he started an official company and got an office in downtown Boston. When a furniture dealer showed up to deliver office furniture, Ponzi said all of his money was tied up in the company at the moment, but that if the dealer did him this favor, he'd take care of him down the road. The dealer dropped the furniture off and left, but he'd be back. By February, Ponzi had raised $5,000 in investments. Keep in mind, this was in 1920. That was a lot of money. By March, that number was up to 30000 By May, he'd collected 420000 worth over $5.5 million today. Business was booming, and it was easy to attract new investors because on paper, you could legitimately prove that money could be made by buying these postal coupons on the cheap and exchanging them in America where they were more valuable. But there was one problem. Ponzi had stopped buying postal coupons a long time ago. Hunting them down took too much work. Besides, there weren't nearly enough postal coupons in the world to cover all the investments he'd taken in. Borrowing a tactic he'd learned from his old boss Luigi, whenever someone asked for a payout, he'd simply pay them with another investor's money. And lucky for him, whenever contracts came due for payout, hardly anyone ever took their money out, thinking their initial investment was only growing larger and larger. He'd taken money from all types of people. Men, women, the young, the old, friends, family, strangers, policemen, priests, sailors. It didn't matter who you were or where your money came from. If you offered it, Ponzi took it. People mortgaged their homes for investment money or handed in their life savings. Ponzi got a bigger office, hired agents to recruit investors, hired managers, and there was so much cash on hand he had to hire the Boston police to stand outside. He used the money generated from the business to hatch another scheme. He started depositing all of the investments into Hanover Trust, a bank in Boston. When he had enough money deposited into the bank to where he was by far and away the majority depositor, he informed the bank that they had two options, either make him the head of the bank or allow him to withdraw all of his money, which would collapse the bank. They chose their only real option and he now had a controlling stake in the bank. Manipulative, yes, but clever nonetheless. By July, he'd received over $1 million in investments, worth over $13 million today. The money was pouring in like a waterfall, but every investment he got made him richer and poorer, putting him deeper into debt. It's hard to imagine what his mindset was at that time. Was he greedy or just naive? He had to know the walls would cave in on him one day, so maybe he made a decision to enjoy this temporary life while he could. He bought a 7,000-square-foot home outside of Boston and spent $500,000 on furnishings alone, installing full AC and heat along with a heated swimming pool, things that were basically unheard of in 1920. 
He brought his mother over from Italy, donated $100,000 to a local orphanage, and hired a public relations agent. He even bought that shipping company he used to work for just so he could fire his old boss. Six months earlier, Charles Ponzi had been flat broke. Now he was a local celebrity who was greeted by mobs of people every day looking to hand him money. He was everything to them. He wasn't a symbol of hope, he was better than hope. He was brilliant and he'd found a way to help everyone profit from his brilliance. A journalist once asked the man in the crowd how important Charles Ponzi was and the man responded that he was one of the most important men in the history of America. Ponzi overheard this and said, well, what about Columbus? And the man responded, yeah, Columbus may have discovered America, but you're the man who invented money. Remember that furniture dealer? His name was J.R. Daniels, and he never got paid for that furniture he dropped off in Ponzi's office. He'd become very aware of the fact that Ponzi was now a rich man, so in the summer of 1920, Daniels sued Ponzi for $1.5 million, claiming he'd given the furniture to Ponzi in exchange for a stake in the company. This was the first time Ponzi had a negative spotlight placed on him. And even though this was more sour grapes than a legitimate claim, people started to ask questions. How can a man with all of this money be in an office with furniture he couldn't afford to pay for? The Boston Post published an article about the lawsuit and it led to many people requesting payouts. After all, who wants their life savings sitting in the hands of a man who's in the process of being sued? Confident that this would blow over, Ponzi granted the payouts with a smile on his face. But now he was on the radar of the bank commissioner and the attorney general, and they had doubts about his legitimacy. They sent investigators to Boston, and the Boston Post continued posting articles about their concerns. The Boston Press also got involved. Ponzi eventually met with government officials who were looking to conduct an audit on his business. They determined that his books were too convoluted to sort out in a short period of time, so Ponzi offered a suggestion. If they felt there was any doubt that his business was legit, he would volunteer to stop taking investments while they sorted out his books and completed the audit. But he would continue to pay out investors who requested it. They accepted the agreement, but of course Ponzi continued to take investments. Shortly after, the Boston Post would release its most devastating work. They dug deeper into Ponzi's business and interviewed the publisher of Wall Street Journal, Clarence Barron, one of the most respected financial journalists of his time. Barron, who was aware that Ponzi had his money stored in a bank, posed the question, if Ponzi can guarantee 400% on his investments, why is he putting his own money into a bank that only guarantees 2 or 3% returns? After pointing out many other concerning facts, Barron concluded that, based on all of the investments Ponzi had received, in order to honor all the contracts of his investors, he would need to own over 160 million postal coupons, but there were only about 27,000 in the entire world. In sociology, a tipping point is a point in time when a group rapidly and dramatically changes its behavior by widely adopting a previously unpopular stance. This was the tipping point. The next day, flocks of people showed up to Ponzi's office demanding payouts. Nearly $2 million was withdrawn by investors in three days. Still playing his role, Ponzi was said to be paying people back with his trademark smile, serving coffee and donuts to people while they waited in line. A short time after, a federal agent showed up to the office and closed it down. They also shut down his bank. The audit was over. Ponzi met with the government officials who broke the news of their discovery. Surrounded by federal agents, he was graceful to the end, asking, Are you telling me that I am factually incapable of paying these debts? To which they replied, yes. He then said, well, in that case, I am your prisoner. 
He was charged with 86 counts of fraud, though he was guilty of thousands more. Over 17,000 people had invested $10 million in just the eight months he ran the scheme. That would be over $130 million today. He was sentenced to a combined 14 years after standing trial in federal and state court. While in prison, he wrote letters to former investors apologizing for deceiving them, and people wrote him back. Predictably, some responses were of the vengeful and hateful variety, but some people openly forgave him, and some even sent him money so he could have something saved up to invest once he got out. The government was able to recoup just a fraction of the money Ponzi had illegitimately collected. Most of the victims took whatever they could get, but surprisingly, some people opted out of receiving anything at all, choosing instead to hold on to their contracts, believing it was all some big mistake, and that Ponzi would honor their agreement and one day make them whole. He left prison in 1934, 14 years after his scheme imploded, and he was met by a crowd. Only this time, the crowd wasn't there to praise him or hand him money. This crowd was there to remind him of the wrongs he'd committed. He was immediately deported back to Italy, prompting his wife, who had stuck by him through the ordeal, to divorce him because she didn't want to leave Boston. He used his stature and fame to get a job as a special agent to an airline company in Brazil, but the airline company closed down not too long after. He died in Brazil in 1949 at the age of 67 with a net worth of $100, just enough to cover his funeral. As you can see, life before and after his 15 minutes of fame was pretty nondescript for Ponzi. He died under the same circumstances in which he was born, but next to nothing. It's hard to praise Ponzi for what he did, and honestly, I don't think he deserves any praise. He was a thief, a liar, a con man. But that's only one side of him. And as horrible as that side was, he was also smart, charming, and in some cases very giving. He had a set of skills, a set of attributes, and he used them to do what we all hope to do with our abilities, forge an avenue to wealth. He achieved it to such a high level that all men and women who come after him with similar stories will live in his shadow. When Bernie Madoff deceived his clients out of $65 billion, the biggest scam in American history, the media called it just another Ponzi scheme. If you enjoyed this episode, it would mean a lot if you rated it and left a review. It helps bring more visibility to the podcast and lets us know how we can improve. For more information about the show, visit us at antiheropodcast.com and follow us on Instagram at antihero underscore podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell a friend about us and don't forget to subscribe. This is Antihero. Antihero.